Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. This is Tracy Blackman's session entitled An Exegesis of Resistance, Finding God in the Rubble. In it she looks at the way that kingdom building work of liberation through radical love is often met with resistance. This workshop is designed to introduce spiritual disciplines that will help you discern God's purpose for your presence in the rubble of resistance. Well, thank you for coming to talk with me and think with me and share with me. I'm hoping that this time will be interactive. We have about an hour. For those of you who are not familiar with me, my name is Tracy Blackman, and I come to you uh, all the way from St. Louis, Missouri. Actually, St. Louis is better known right now as Ferguson, Missouri because of some of the issues that we've had there. Uh, right before I made this trip, I spent two weeks in the Middle East and with only two days in between. And so I'm finding out that we really have these same issues everywhere. Uh, coming here has shown me that uh, many of the same issues, though they wear different clothes because it's a different culture, uh, but they're the same issues. The same issues I saw in Palestine, same issues I saw in Jordan same issues I saw at the Syrian border are um, at their heart, the issues that we had in Ferguson. So what I would like to do is tell you uh, some of the story of what happened in Ferguson and then have conversation with you about why it matters that in areas of oppression, uh, in areas of resistance, that people of faith show up why it matters that uh, you have people who have strong beliefs in God, uh, strong beliefs that God's word will be fulfilled, uh, and a strong connection to both prayer and the power of knowing and loving Jesus Christ to show up in these spaces of tension. I don't know about in Australia, and, and I really am asking these questions when I ask, uh, in St. Louis, what we found when we began to uh, find ourselves in the middle of uh, all-out protest and resistance is that many people in the church felt that their place was only in the church. Do you have that issue here? Um, that uh, people of faith, we are really good prayers, and we like to pray. Uh, and we like to think about things and meditate on things, and sometimes we like to write checks. But when it comes to actually being in the street, there are some of us who are comfortable with that and some of us who are not. And let me say, this is not a guilt trip because everybody's call is not everyone's call, right? Uh, but it is important that some people, uh, some people of faith show up in the streets with the people who are feeling marginalized and with the people who in many times, many instances, are not necessarily carrying out their own wishes on the other side, 
but are fulfilling their positions, their jobs, and their duties. It's important for us to remember that as well. Uh, so the journey that I've been on around this, I have called Finding God in the Rubble. Because the only way I've found to be able to continue to do this work without just being utterly overwhelmed and, and exhausted um, and depressed <laughs> is to look for God in unusual places. And I invite you to do that with me. I'll give you a little bit of history. This session will focus on the communal resistance that emerged in Ferguson, Missouri in response to the killing and the desecration of Michael Brown Jr. And it is important that I name both of those things. Uh, black bodies dying in Ferguson, Missouri, black bodies dying in New York City, black bodies dying in Chicago, black bodies dying in Florida, black bodies dying in Australia is no new phenomenon. And it would have been very easy for us to turn on the TV, as many of us have become desensitized to violence, and see that another person had lost their lives, make our assumptions about what happened in that situation, believe the stories that we hear or not believe the stories that we hear, and move on to our next soap opera, because we see that much violence in the United States. I don't know about over here, um, but you could turn on your news and in one news cycle see about three or four deaths of varying kinds. Uh, so in many ways, we've become desensitized to the amount of violence that we have in the US. What made Michael Brown's story different was that Michael Brown uh, was an 18-year-old young man who was walking down the street with a friend. Uh, I'm not gonna say that he was a saint because he was not. I'm not gonna say that he always did the right thing because I doubt if he did. He was 18 years old, uh, but he didn't have a record. I can say that. Um, and he was a huge guy. He wasn't a little, a little bitty guy. He weighed over 200 pounds. He was over six feet tall, um, intimidating to some, uh, and he had a big mouth. And so he was walking in the middle of the street in his neighborhood. He was one block from his grandmother's home. That's where he was headed. Uh, and he, um, he and his friend were not on the sidewalk. They were walking in the middle of the street. A policeman who patrolled that area regularly drove down the street and told them to get the F out of the street. This much we know. Uh, and we also know that Michael Brown uh, did not get out of the street and uh, said something back to the police officer. Uh, I'm gonna give you that. It probably had an F in it too, I'm not sure. Um, but there was an altercation in that way. So he did resist in that way, but the crime was walking down the street. Eight seconds later, he was dead. Um, he was in the middle of the street, shot, his friend who was with him ran when the bullet started to fly, and he was not hit because he hid behind a car. What is interesting about this case is that even though Michael Brown uh, in at least US media was uh, villainized and was criminalized uh, by the media, the person who was with him uh, was never charged with anything. Uh, so it's not that they were, had committed a crime or were coming from committing a crime. The police officer later said that he believed 
uh, that Michael Brown had been involved in um, some kind of crime, but all of that came out after he was dead. There were no, um, you know, I want to say walkie-talkie, but you know how police talk back to the station. There were no reports of um, him inquiring about Michael Brown until he was dead. Another important thing that I think uh, in this case is that this was in the middle, this happened in the middle of an apartment complex, and it was a Saturday, which means that there were children all around and there were families home. It was not a work day. And if you go into this neighborhood, into this apartment complex, even today, you can see bullet holes in the, uh, in the buildings, in the apartment buildings. And so we're just grateful, uh, sad that Michael Brown lost his life, but grateful that there wasn't anyone else killed in this incident, no children, et cetera. That didn't even make this case different. What made this case different is because it was Saturday there were a lot of young people home as well, and the apartment complexes were such that people lived three stories up. Th you know, there were three stories to each building, and there were balconies on each apartment level. And so when the shooting started, uh, because Americans are very nosy people, we don't go in the house when things are happening, people started coming out on balconies, and most of these were young millennials who came out with cell phones, because that's how we roll now, and they started live streaming what was happening. So what we saw in our live streams, those of us who were not out there, was the body of Michael Brown lying in the middle of the street, uncovered, and yellow tape around him, and you could hear in the background a wail that every mother would recognize if they were to ever hear it. We knew it was his mother, and she was crying for somebody to give her child some attention. And during the time that he laid in the middle of the street, no paramedic, no ambulance came to even check and see if he had a pulse. And for four and a half hours, he laid in the middle of the street in his own blood. That is what made Michael Brown different because the world saw what we saw, and the city saw what the neighborhood saw. And as it began to make its rounds in social media, then people started to respond and show up from all over St. Louis. So it's important to name those two things, not just that he was killed, but that he was also desecrated in that experience. And the necessity of linking experiences and establishing a theological case for developing new frameworks to mitigate the increasing presence of police and militarization of police departments across this nation. Uh, in the book of Genesis, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 10, uh, there is a, a passage of scripture that deals with Cain and Abel. You're familiar with that scripture? Uh, and we often use this scripture now when we talk about not just Michael Brown, but many of the deaths that have been happening in the United States. Uh, we use this scripture, verses 8 through 10, and I'll read it to you. Uh, it says, Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And what I am asking you to do with me in this presentation and to do also in the areas and the places and the context where you may work and live is to listen. Because if we believe in the Jesus that we preach and teach about, we really are one another's brothers and sisters. Doesn't matter our skin color, doesn't matter our location, doesn't matter our class, doesn't matter gender. We are our brothers and we are brothers and sisters. And so the answer to that question Am I your brother's keeper is what? Yes, we are. I've listed some books that you might be interested in looking at at some time, and I'll put those back up at the end in case anyone wants to write them down. It's also important for me to let you know that the images that you see on the slides that I have are not clip art. <laughs> These are not images that I pulled off of a website. These are images from Ferguson. <laughs> He's looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> but these are actual images from the resistance that happened in Ferguson. This is what our streets began to look like. And I want to start by talking about policing and militarism. And you can tell me if there's some similarities. I'm not sure about that. But policing, particularly through the use of paramilitary teams in the United States, has become excessively militarized, mainly through federal programs that create incentives for state and local police to use unnecessarily aggressive weapons and tactics designed for, that says the battlefield, but designed for war. What is happening in the United States, especially since the Iraq War. Are you guys familiar? There was so much military equipment created. And when the war is over, <laughs> or when they, correct, when they uh, build additional equipment, they need something to do with those tanks, with those, you're looking at me like I'm crazy, but I'm telling the truth. They need something to do with those tanks and with all of the military equipment they have supplied. Because war is not just about winning on principle. War is a business, right? It's a cash business. And there has to be a supply and demand to keep that business going. And so guess what we found out in ways that we never knew before when Ferguson happened, is that when military finished with those tanks and that armor and all of this equipment that's really made for war, it is then available to our police departments. And they get it on a grant, so it's not costing the police departments much, and because they can apply for this equipment by grant, they circumvent all of the regulations and rules that would help you um, as citizens, right, regulate what's coming into your communities and neighborhoods. In other words, 
we don't get a vote on those tanks and that armor and that equipment coming in. We don't even know it's there because it is coming in as a grant, as a gift. Does that make sense? And so what you see on these pictures, these tanks with snipers on top of them are police officers uh, not really trained for combat, but trained to protect and serve in these military vehicles that they keep for moments just like this. And you might say, well, what was on the other side of those vehicles? Predominantly millennials, ages 19 to about 30, are not exclusively. Some of us old folks were in there too. Uh, but we didn't have weapons. We had, well, that's questionable. You could call a water bottle a weapon if you throw it. And they did do that. They called that a weapon. Um, you could call um, mostly water bottles and not even a whole lot of bricks or, or uh, things like that. Um, the, the community was responding. So this happened because when Michael Brown died, people started coming into the neighborhoods and not coming by tens and twenties, but coming by hundreds, right? and coming by thousands. And the sheer volume of people of color in a neighborhood that um, it implies that you are out of control, right? They were angry, they were yelling. All of that is true, but they weren't attacking anybody, right? And so to control the neighborhood, these tanks and all of these things came in. And it's important to recognize that these tanks and this armor and this equipment were available because we have military systems in the United States that makes available to local police departments equipment that is designed for war. Because it comes in that way, there is a lack of transparency and a lack of oversight. And this is what you see, another picture of police officers coming from all around to try to get control of uh, what was happening in Ferguson. We had SWAT teams that came into Ferguson, uh, SWAT teams with snipers on the top. We had tear gas bombs that came into Ferguson. We had rubber bullets and wooden bullets being used in Ferguson. And just in case you think you're protected because you wear a collar or a cross, we had clergy who were in full regalia shot with rubber bullets and wooden bullets uh, because they were standing in the street with protesters. And so it, all, that all, um, all security was off. Everybody was vulnerable in this moment. And not just the people but also the police. I don't want to make it seem like it's one-sided, right? The police didn't have, I mean, the people didn't have the weapons that the police have, but anytime you start having large groups of people come into an area, you are going to have some people in that crowd who are inciting, right? <laughs> You're going to have some people in that crowd who want things to go to the next level. And so we were dealing with that as well as people of faith. Uh, the SWAT teams are often deployed unnecessarily and aggressively to execute search warrants in low-level drug investigations. Do you guys know anything about that? 
Uh, I don't know if you know it around drugs, but here's the thing. Uh, I can summarize it like this. You can have police departments that are serving and protecting and keeping criminals away, and then you can have police departments that are criminalizing people so that they can keep people away, right? And so in low level in St. Louis, in low level, uh, low level meaning low economic level, mainly areas with people of color, mainly areas with large unemployment rates, we have high incidence of incarceration, high incidence of multiple ticketing, high incidence of uh, people being stopped by police uh, for any number of reasons and having records put against them. And what we found in this area is that that was a business as well because we have all of these municipalities, which means uh, in St. Louis, if you have a municipality, it means it has its own police department, it has its own mayor, it has its own governmental structure. Where most places have two or three municipalities, St. Louis has 91. So within two to three blocks range, you will have passed through two municipalities at least. And to get from work to home, you may pass through eight or nine municipalities, all having their own police department, all having their own rules, all having their own governance, all having their own jails. What that means is you don't have enough people living in that area to support this structure. And the way they support it is by illegally taxing poor people extrapolating wealth from poor people by stopping them and giving them multiple tickets, right? So let me give you an example, because some of you are looking at me like that can't be possible, but it is the truth, right? So you say you have a broken headlight in municipality one, and you're on your way to work. And you travel a half a mile, and you get stopped in municipality one, and you get a ticket for that broken headlight. And then you proceed on to work, and a half a mile down the road, you're now in municipality two. And you get stopped again. And you get a ticket for that headlight. Or they stop you, and you get multiple tickets for multiple things. I stopped you because uh, your car looks suspicious, but now I'm gonna give you a ticket because you don't have your insurance card in the, in the car with you, because you weren't wearing your seatbelt, because you weren't doing this, you weren't doing that. And in case you think I'm making it up, you can Google this because the Department of Justice, out because of what happened in Ferguson, opened an investigation into what's happening and the entire area is now under the purview of the Department of Justice for violating civil rights by doing this ticketing. That's where we are right now. And so these municipalities were sustaining themselves by ticketing and collecting the revenue off the tickets. And then if you couldn't pay the tickets, you were jailed. It's a horrible system, right? And how do systems get that horrible? 
because I, like most of you, do not think that people are inherently bad. I just don't. I hope you don't think that. I still don't think that. But I do think that things get out of control and that people become so fearful of one another and people buy into systems and become silent about systems in a way that we end up with the disasters that we had in Ferguson. 61% of all the people impacted by SWAT raids, which is when the police come into your home looking for drugs, whether you have them or not, are minorities in my area. 61% are minorities. Use of violent tactics. SWAT deployments often end up with people being shot, being hurt, being harmed, even if the end result is that they found no drugs or no criminal reaction. And that also is disproportionate to minorities. Now I'm talking specifically, black people are not the only minority in St. Louis, uh, but during this Ferguson thing, it was an issue of black, uh, black people fighting police departments that actually uh, did not look predominantly like them. So here's some of the statistics so you can get an idea of what we were dealing with. 67% of African Americans in Ferguson account for 93% of the arrest. Does that sound like anything familiar here? Just asking. The disproportionate number of arrests, tickets, and use of force stemmed from unlawful bias rather than black people committing more crime. From October 2012 to 2014, every time, did you hear me say every time? Every time a person was arrested because he or she was resisting arrest, they were black. Every time. African Americans were almost exclusively on the receiving end of some of these violations, 95% of the arrests for manner of walking in, well, in roadway, which is what Michael Brown was doing, were black. 94% of failure to comply with police was black. Every single time a police officer released a dog to bite an individual, that individual was black. Less than 8% of these police officers, however, are black. And when you get into the political structure of the Ferguson area, all of the governmental employees, except for one, was white. African Americans accounted for 90% of the officers' use of force. And we were not just more likely to be stopped, but we were more likely to be cited and arrested regardless of the reason for the stop. That's what I was talking to you about. And that we were more likely to receive multiple citations during a single incident. African-American drivers are twice as likely as white drivers to be searched during a traffic stop, but 26% less likely to be found in position in possession of contraband. I'm not making it up. These are just the stats. 
and I don't know what it feels like in Australia, I'll be interested for you to tell me in just a moment. More than 1,000 people are killed by police every year in America. That's a lot of people, don't you think? 1,152 in 2015 alone. And from January to now, we already are at 736. Not just in Ferguson now, I'm saying in America, but that's a lot of people, right? Police killed at least 336 black people in 2015. And we are more likely to be killed by the largest police departments, disproportionately killing blacks who were 41% of victims despite only being 20% of the population living in these cities. 41 of the 60 police departments disproportionately killed black people relative to the population. And there were 14 police departments in the United States that in 2015 only exclusively killed black people. 100% of the people killed by those police departments were black. I want to stop there and ask you some questions. I know Australia is not the United States. Every area has their own issues. But since I've been here these few days, what I have been hearing is that the indigenous people of Australia are disproportionately incarcerated and disproportionately uh, the juveniles as well are disproportionately detained in juvenile detention centers. Is that true? Why do you think this happens? Here or in Australia, why do you think this happens? Because of racism. Yes, that's, that's a good answer, and it's a very succinct answer. But how do we get here? Systematic disadvantage right, on multiple levels. And I would suggest to you that racism is not as cut and dry as we make it, right? And that there are a whole lot of things that, that play into our fear of one another. Fear that sometimes turns to hatred. Assumptions we make about people that we don't know. Assumptions that are aided and uh, increased by media attention, by what's lifted up by people, about people that we don't know, right? And if we don't have any one-to-one -one relationships, real relationships with people in these communities, then it is very easy for the people that we see shot, the people that we see arrested, to become uh, those people who deserved it, <laughs> or to become the people we don't speak out for. When Darren Wilson, the officer who killed Michael Brown, was interviewed, uh, in an interview that he was paid $1 million for, by the way, when he was interviewed on TV about why he killed Michael Brown Jr., who was unarmed, he said he looked like the Hulk. And I saw the devil in his eyes. And those kind of images and those kinds of comments come from people who have no genuine relationship with people other than those who look like themselves. 
And when you are in the majority, when you are in the majority race, because, because white people are not the majority in the world. We don't talk about that, but the world is really brown, right? <laughs> but in these kinds of situations, when you are in the majority and you don't have any personal relationship with people different than yourself, it's easy to make assumptions. We make assumptions all the time, right? But if you are a person of color and you are living as a minority in a place, you don't have a choice but to get to know something about the people in the majority. I'm suggesting that as people of faith, we must start to make relationships with people who are different than us. We must. Authentic relationships and writing checks and giving donations are needed in some situations, but what is really needed is one-on-one -on -one relationships. Because if you have a relationship, it's harder to believe the pictures that are being painted by entire, for entire groups of people, right? So these are some of the examples that come to my mind. America's a crazy place. I know you all are more civilized than we are, I hope. Um, but in America, if a, if a black person commits a crime, and that certainly happens, it is usually attributed to the race and not just to the person. Do you understand what I mean? The news stories will talk about black people, right? They will, it, it won't be this, just this person and what this person did. It gets generalized to the whole group as an example of the deviant behavior, as an example of the inability to function in, the, in society in a legal way. The whole neighborhood gets involved for that. So one of my pet peeves about that is that people talk about communal violence in the United States. When it happens in black neighborhoods, they call it black-on-black -black crime. Have you ever heard that term before? Uh, it means that black people are killing black people, right? Uh, and and the, the stats are always pulled out that more black people are killed by black people than are killed by police, that are killed by white people. And that is true, because that's how communal violence works. You kill the people, if you're killing people, you kill the people that are close around you. You kill the people in your neighborhood. You don't go across the bridge and kill people. You, you're arguing with people you live with, right? But if you look at the stats for something like that in the United States, then 87% of black people in America are killed by black people. But guess what? 84% of white people in America are killed by white people. But we never talk about white on white crime. Do you get what I'm saying? There hasn't been a mass shooting in Birmingham. I'm from Birmingham. That's bad, too. Uh, a mass shooting in St. Louis. I'm talking about the shootings where one person goes in and kills, uh, shoots up a whole classroom of children. One person goes in and shoots up a movie theater. Those cases have not been done by people of color, and we have many. They've all been white assailants, but the white, the white population in general has not been blamed for that, and nor should they be, right? 
nor should they be. Furthermore, in those kind of cases, we tend to think about what is psychologically wrong with this person. Because to kill somebody, something has to be off in you, right? And I'm not suggesting that there's something wrong with that. I'm suggesting that there is something wrong with that same level of discretion and, um, and equality not being paid to both sides. So, yes. I know. I can talk. I, I have a big mouth. I'm okay. Thank you. They have to start the pizza oven because uh, at 5.30 they have to be ready. So we began uh, in Ferguson as a result of what happened with Michael Brown and because for 365 days, young people were in the streets of Ferguson. It is the longest prolonged um, protest by people of color in our area since the Montgomery bus boycott. For 365 days, every day, <laughs> There were people in the streets protesting the killing of Michael Brown. And the community at large began to see that this was not going to go away. And the governor appointed a commission of 16 people to say, figure out what the community needs and what we need to do. And I was blessed to be a part of that commission. 385 people applied, 16 of us were chosen and these are some of the things we came up with that had to happen we had to revise use of force policies and training in our neighborhoods because we found that not only were police trigger happy that perhaps many of them were trigger happy because they had not had adequate training because they were not um, required to live in the neighborhoods that they were governing because many of them um, because you have so many municipalities and you have so many police departments, you could not qualify for a police department over here and then apply and get a job over here. You understand what I'm saying? Um, sometimes for lower pay, uh, all these kinds of things were coming in and we wanted some regulation about that. Uh, we had police officers who were not having psychological exams before they joined police forces. How many of you in here are clergy? Any clergy, just me and you. Did you have to have a, a psychological exam to go into? I did, I'm feeling like targeted. <laughs> when I became a, a clergy member, I had to have uh, a thorough psychological exam, $1,500 psychological exam, you know? And, and I think it's necessary because I am in a position where I impact other people's lives. And people need to know that I have basic sanity. <laughs> That's all you know, but you need to know that, right? And so I would think that if you're gonna put a gun in somebody's hand, that you would wanna know that they don't have mental issues or psychological issues that might impair their judgment in that job. It's not to discriminate, that's not what I'm saying, right? But in that psychological exam I had as a, a, uh, as a minister, it wasn't just about whether or not I was imbalanced, but it was about the factors in my life that can trigger some things that I might not even know about. And not that it has to keep you from being a police officer, or keep you from being a minister, but you need to know what you're dealing with, right? 
we don't have that in St. Louis, so that's one of the things we wanted. Another thing we wanted was an assignment of an attorney general as a special prosecutor in police force cases. Because what made it worse for Michael Brown is that Darren Wilson was not charged with anything. He was not even indicted. The prosecuting attorney uh, in this case decided to use a grand jury process, something we have in St. In, in St. Louis. You can appoint a grand jury without going to trial and let that grand jury decide whether or not there's enough evidence to go for prosecution. It is well known that prosecutors who don't really want to make a decision use a grand jury. And this particular prosecutor used a grand jury. Now, we could say that that was a non-biased way for him to work, but let me tell you about the prosecutor in St. Louis at this time. The prosecutor in St. Louis at this time was the son of a police officer who was killed in the line of duty by a black man when the prosecutor was eight years old. Would you think that would make you have some feelings about, the, about police? And I'm just saying, just as a human being, right? His father was killed. And he was making decisions about cases between police and black civilians. And it's not reasonable to expect that he wouldn't have some bias in that area. Does that make him a bad person? No, it doesn't. But it does mean that some of his decisions may be influenced by his history that wasn't taken into account. And we asked on several occasions that he recuse himself and just bring in another prosecuting attorney, and he refused. This prosecuting attorney has been the prosecuting attorney for 23 years, and in 23 years, he has never indicted a police officer for killing a black person. Even when we had a case, we have Jack in the Box. I don't think Jack in the Box is in Australia, but it would be like McDonald's. I'm sure you have McDonald's. Do you have McDonald's? It would be like a different version of McDonald's. We had a case in St. Louis where two men were sitting in the parking lot of Jack in the Box, and they were eating sandwiches. Maybe they had a record before. I'm going to say they did. I think they did have a record before. But at this particular point, they weren't doing anything. And police officers opened fire on them. 28 bullets later, they were both dead. Police officers said they went up to the car to inquire what was going on in the car, and the people in the car tried to run them over. And if that had happened, they would be justified in those bullets. But when the camera, when the tape from the camera in Jack in the Box came out, it showed that the people were sitting in the car eating. The car never moved and the policeman opened fire on them. And this prosecutor failed to even indict in that case and called the two people in the car thugs that we were better off without anyway. So this is the man who made this decision, and it's why we wanted these kind of things addressed. We wanted court sentencing reforms to deal with the high ticketing and the high incarceration rates that were a result of that. And we wanted some of these municipalities to consolidate 
because as long as they needed ticket money, revenue money, to pay their payroll, we knew this wasn't going to get any better. So we convened many, many groups over nine months, community groups, asking them what it is they wanted and articulating that in the list that you just saw. That was our job. And to give that back to the governor's office for implementation. And so in this process, out of the 16 of us, there were a couple of police officers, there were a couple of clergy, of which I was one, there were school teachers, there were residents who lived in Ferguson, there were residents who did not live in Ferguson, all in this room. And we all had different opinions, different ideas, came from different walks of life, different experiences that made us look at this situation different and what was gonna come out of it different. different. So my question to you was that my question that we, I had to answer for myself in this um, process. How do you reach out to people with whom you do not agree, theologically or culturally or politically? How do you reach out to people to do what's best for your area with people with whom you do not agree? Because we play well with one another, right? For the most part, we play well with one another. How do we play with people who are not like us? Because this is where faith entered for me. As a local clergy, we had to make a response. And for whatever reason, God chose me to lead this response. I don't know what that reason is. I've asked God several times. I have a small church in Ferguson, 160 members. I know churches within five or 10 miles with me, of me with five and 6,000 members. I was not a big time pastor. I was bivocational because I was not a big time pastor. I'm a woman, in case you haven't noticed, uh, and I delight in every bit of my femininity. Okay. And for many clergy, women in the pulpit is not an acceptable alternative. So there were clergy who did not associate with me in my role as a pastor because they did not believe theologically that I have the right to be a pastor. And they have the right to believe whatever they want to believe, and I'm going to preach anyhow, right? So we have this issue going on. I'm black. You might not have noticed that either. So we have racial tensions, even within the church. If we don't, if we, we can act like we don't, but we do. That's a dynamic. And God is saying, this is the moment that you have to step into. I didn't think anybody would answer. But it was the exact opposite. And God showed me the first time I called for clergy to gather at my church, I thought that maybe 20 to 30 people would show up. Over 500 clergy showed up. 
male clergy, female clergy, all different denominations, all different faiths, rabbis, imams, Buddhists, atheists, agnostics, all showed up in this space. Straight, gay, all showed up in this space. And when I stood up to address them, the Lord spoke to me before I spoke to them and said, take a moment and look. Because what is in this space are clergy that would never be in a space together under any other circumstances. What's in this space are people who would not even worship together, but have come together because of the magnitude of this moment. The city is burning, and we all have to respond. And so I offer that part of my testimony to you because when God is in it, it does not matter who you are. It only matters if you are a willing vessel for the spirit of God to move through you. And God does amazing things. Tracy didn't do anything. God also showed me that it was me because I had a little bitty church. Because the big pastors would have been arguing about who's gonna be in charge. So God uses unlikely vessels. And you must just have the courage to step into the moments that God has designed for you. All God is asking from you is a simple yes. What does that look like to choose to work with people who don't believe theologically the same thing that you believe? Contrary to popular opinion, it doesn't mean you changing what you believe. It simply means you acknowledging that everybody doesn't agree with you. <laughs> It didn't mean that I stopped praying in the name of Jesus. It didn't mean that I expected someone who didn't believe in Jesus to pray in the name of Jesus. Sometimes, my friends, we have to unite around a cause and say, if we can agree on this cause, we're going to come with our beliefs and our faith, and we're going to work to make a difference. Because what is happening, not just in Ferguson, but all over, is going to take all of us working together to defeat what is harming and killing our people. That's just the bottom line. It meant that culturally, those who may not have any relationship together outside of this work had to come together. And I saw that most in that Ferguson Commission. People whom I might not ever be in a room with. People on the Ferguson Commission ranged from multimillionaires 
to people who were making $7 an hour. And in the United States, $7 an hour is a poverty wage. And every one of us had the same vote. And we had to figure out how to see things the same way. So when I pushed, even in the Ferguson Commission, for a recommendation for wages to increase to $15 an hour, the people who were making $7 an hour were really excited. But the multimillionaires were like, you have lost your freaking mind. Because we own the businesses that employ people that make $7 an hour. And you know how we got through it? We just agreed to stay at the table. And sometimes it won't be a murder. It might be something else going on in your communities. You have to agree to stay at the table, even if you disagree. Politically, we're all over the place. I guess I don't have to tell you that because Trump is leading. <laughs> we are all over the place. But even on the serious side of that, politically, Donald Trump is leading because our nation is hurting and because there are people who feel marginalized and who feel invisible. And in all of our attention and right attention to people of color who have been marginalized, there was another group that was also marginalized because we put so much on skin color that we don't dare look under the surface. And so there are a whole lot of white people in, in, in Missouri and in the United States who are poor, who are barely making it, who are barely surviving, and who feel like nobody sees them and nobody cares because they're white, right? And they're angry. And Donald Trump is speaking to that anger. And so there's a whole constituency rising up that's scaring the heck out of everybody because they're rising up because they haven't had a voice. And this is what happens when we marginalize anybody by arbitrary things. That's why I preached yesterday that there's only one breath. And we got to get that through our heads. That we have to be concerned with the well-being of everybody or we're going to continue to have these problems. So some of the strategies as clergy you have to look at. One is you need to be able to identify who your colleagues are in ministry for me and in ministry for you, even if it's not pulpit ministry. Who are your allies? Who are your colleagues? Start building your base there. And then ask yourself, what kind of relationships are you building outside of the established church? Sometimes we become so comfortable. We have our own language, our Christianese talk. People who are outside of the church sometimes don't even know what we're talking about. We preach scriptures without reading them, without referencing them, assuming that everybody knows the same Bible stories everybody else knows. And guess what? Occasionally, we actually do do our job and bring in new disciples. And they may not know the stories. 
They may not know who David is, as shocking as that is. They may not know who Esther and Ruth are. And so, what kind of relationships are we establishing with those who don't have our background, who don't know what we know? When I went into Ferguson as a leader of faith, I went in as a listener, not as a preacher. I wore my stole, I wore my collar, but I listened. Because the reality is, I live a pretty comfortable life. And I have absolutely no idea what it would be like, even though I'm black, I don't have any personal experience with being harassed by policemen. I don't have any personal experience with being ticketed to a level that I can't pay. I've never been in jail. I don't know what it's like to have a father who is unemployed. I don't know what it's like to live in an area where people self-medicate with narcotics. That is not my story. And the only way I was gonna understand was to become a part. And the only way to become a part is to listen, not to assume that we know what other people are dealing with. And so I went in as a listener and established relationships with these people. I talked a little bit about this in the leadership luncheon, and, and many of you probably weren't there. But in this generation, in the time we're dealing with, it takes a network approach to deal with the issues that we have. What does that mean? I'm 53 years old. I don't know how many of you are older than me or relating to my age, but I grew up in a hierarchical uh, arrangement. The older people, the people in charge told me what to do and I did it. That's how I was raised. But my children, uh, they have opinions about things. <laughs> And they think that they have the right to share those opinions with me, even if I get my way at the end, right? And so the generation that was out in the streets is not a generation that you tell to go sit down somewhere and they're just going to sit down. They are a generation who know what they want and where they're going, and they are courageous enough to push to get there, and they don't feel like they have a whole lot to lose. So to come in and try to dictate to them how this was going to go was going to mean we weren't going to get anywhere. We had to have a different kind of leadership. And it was a leadership from within. It was a network leadership. And it was so confusing to everybody that everyone kept saying, who is the leader? Who is the leader of what's happening in Ferguson? And the answer was, it was a leaderful movement. Nobody was making decisions for on behalf of everyone else. Everyone was coming together collectively and deciding what our voice was. And in terms of clergy and people of faith, we had to ground what we were doing in biblical leadership. We had to ground it in theology, and that's not hard to do. We serve a Christ who was born in an occupied land. That's who we serve. We serve a Christ who came to make a judgment against the regime. We serve a Christ who came to liberate those who were in bondage. 
Jesus is a radical revolutionary. And even though we like to paint pictures of him sitting by a sheep, he actually was a radical revolutionary. And even the statement of death on a cross is an act of resistance. And the ultimate act of resistance is to rise up again. And this is who Jesus is. And so we had to begin to ground what we were doing in cl as clergy in that theological framework. And also in a framework that reminded us in whose name we were doing it. So it meant that even when people got upset and people got violent and people were throwing things, we still had to see God in the middle of that. In the middle of all that rubble, we had to see God. We had to see God in the police officers who had guns. We had to see God in them. We had to see that they were fearful and that they too were victims of the circumstances we were in. And we had to see God in the anger of the young people. And we had to hold to that no matter what was going on. We had major partners and one of them is listed here in social organizations, partners for resources, et cetera, et cetera. And we made major partnerships with others that I list here. So, so I'm suggesting that if we are going to lead with a biblical basis, and these problems that happen in Ferguson are not just there, they're happening everywhere, that we don't need just one type of person, we need many. And as ministers, ministers of the gospel, I suggest to you that these are, are, are situations that you can't lead from the sideline. That we need priests to minister to those who are hurting. And in order to be a priest, you have to have close proximity. That we need prophets who are not afraid to speak truth to power, who are not afraid to say what needs to be said, even if they don't have any uh, friends as a result you still need the king who can handle dealing with public policy. And you need the sage who is practicing compassion and who is reminding us of the power of prayer. There is no blueprint. Every situation is different. We are still living through Ferguson. When I leave these sessions in the daytime, I spend time on Facebook arguing with millennials because they're for Bernie and I'm for Hillary. And they're upset with me about that, right? But a part of being authentic in a situation is being able to articulate who you are and why you do what you do and being okay if everybody doesn't agree with you. My job is not to make everybody agree with me. My job is to make sure that everybody can see the Christ in me and that I see the Christ in them. I'm gonna stop because I've been talking a long time and you may have some questions. I hope that you've heard something that you can relate to in terms of where you are here. 
it doesn't seem as though you have the violence erupting in the way that we do. Um, and I, I hope that you don't. But I'll tell you that if people continue to be marginalized, there is a point where people get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that's what happened in Ferguson. It was the last straw. And no matter how passive people are, no matter how good people are, no matter how much they love the Lord, there is a last straw. Do you have any questions? Any thoughts? Yes. Um, as a woman of colour, how do you, um, what's the best way for, say, someone, oh, so someone who's white like me, coming into a situation where you're, I'm working cross-culturally with, with someone of colour, where I haven't experienced the systematic oppression that you may have experienced or your family has? Did you all hear her question? As a woman of colour, what recommendation would I give to a woman like her, a white woman who is coming in and trying to work cross-culturally and has not ha had those experiences. My number one advice would be, don't act like you've had those experiences, right? Come in in a listening mode and understand that in this situation, you are not the leader and you are not the expert, right? I mean, it's easy to say that, it's difficult to do. It's difficult to do. Um, I wish I could find a piece that I wrote for many of my friends because um, we had three different types of white scenarios that came out of Ferguson in the church. We had the churches that did nothing. And they did nothing, this is my estimation, they did nothing because they didn't know what to do. <laughs> I'm not saying churches that didn't care, okay? I'm saying churches that were incapacitated because they didn't know how to respond. And then you had churches that did nothing because they were able to go to safe areas and safe zones and pretend this was not their thing. We had churches that were sending supplies and donations to Africa but couldn't help Ferguson. You understand what I'm saying? And then we had the white churches that came in in superhero cape mode. And let me just take over and fix this for you, right? And when you try to take over and fix a situation for people, you remove their dignity. So what I recommend is that you listen and that you form genuine relationships that are not based on transaction but based on conversation where you hear stories and you get to know the stories. And even when you know them, the person who told it to you does not lose possession of it. It's still their story. It's the harder way. It's the longer way. But it's the more authentic way. And then lastly, I would say that the job in all resistance, the job of moving forward as people is that there is some work that white people have to do with white people. And it's not the work that I can do. 
It's the work that only you can do. And I need you to do that work. I don't need anybody, I'm talking my story now, I don't need anybody to tell me how to fish, how to, how to, how to catch a fish, how to clean a fish, how to get more fish. I'm one of the best fishers in the world because I live this life, right? And that's one of the things we say in America, you know, if you teach a per you give a person a fish, they'll eat for a day. You teach them how to fish, they'll eat for life. I'm saying that people who are marginalized, black people all over the world, we know how to fish. We've been fishing where there is no water. We know how to fish, right? <laughs> what we need is access to the ponds. And those are things that you're in a position to help with. But that's more difficult, because I'm asking you to talk to people who may not believe like you believe, and who may not want to see that change or be comfortable with that change. Yes. Yes. I'm being oversimplistic, but yes. <laughs> So I'm making a difference. I'm making a difference. Um, one that I wasn't aware of before, but there's a difference in a church responding and a pastor responding, right? So when I say that my church was full of ministers, the church was full of ministers, but some of those ministers come alone, and some bring a congregation. Do you understand what I'm saying? That doesn't matter whether you're black or white. That's just the issue. Some ministers have the ability to bring their congregation with them because their teaching and their preaching has been such that has prepared the congregation for the moment. Some preachers are way out ahead of their congregations and they're there but they're not there bringing the whole body with them. So when I say I'm talking about the responses of churches, we had churches who were afraid to come into Ferguson. We had white churches in Ferguson who didn't have church because they were afraid <laughs> to have church in Ferguson. Not because of anything that had happened in their congregation, not because of anything that had happened to their building, but because they didn't know how to respond because they watched the same movies, the same media coverage, they read the same books, they hear the same stories as everybody else and they have been impacted by it. Then we had churches who wanted to respond but didn't want to do the right, wrong thing. And most of those were our liberal churches, right? So if you're trying to do the right thing, and in, in race relations I'm talking, if you're trying to do the right thing and you're white, the worst thing in the world is to be called a racist, to say the wrong thing to be misinterpreted, to make the wrong step. And we had churches that in conversation now I know did not move because they didn't want to move in the wrong direction. So they didn't move at all. They're showing up now because that, that main pressure is off. You know what I'm saying? And then we had churches that came in with guns blazing and checkbooks writing, but they wanted to run it. And, and you can't run it. 
you have to come in and work in it and learn. Right? It's just growing pain. Absolutely, absolutely. And we've started dialogue groups so that we can get to know each other better outside of this. One of the things that we've started in St. Louis, I've, I've started to work with some churches, multiracial churches, and not just churches, synagogues, temples, etc., cetera, um, to have days of service together outside of crisis, right? And each, uh, community of faith, wherever it is, they get that opportunity to choose the day, choose what we're going to do that day of service, because we all have blind spots, right? And race is a huge issue; it's not the only issue. And so, while if you, if it's my church's time, we might do something around race that confronts you with that. But then I partner with the church in Parkway, Parkway Church. Um, and the last community service event we did with them, they did it around people with disabilities. You understand what I'm saying? And somehow, these moments of collaborating church with church, not just pastor with pastor, is giving opportunities for our members to get to know each other, for conversations and dialogue to be deeper than just on the surface and for us to see what one another cares about, because we ultimately all care about it. It's working for us, but it's a long process. Yeah, do you guys do anything like that over here? Okay. Just two? In America, you'd have one on every block. You have a church and a liquor store, every block. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. How do you manage the tension between mercy and justice? You always ask me these kind of questions. I don't know, I think you're a plant or something. It's an, easy, it's, it's, it's an easy and difficult question because I define justice as a different, in a different way, right? So there's not so much conflict for me. For me, justice is not um, a person getting what they deserve. Justice for me is God getting what God desires. And God desires transformation, not persecution. You understand what I'm saying? And so when I think about it that way, when I say no justice, no peace, I don't mean the criminal court system in all instances. Ultimately, what we need is for people to be transformed by the power of God. You can't jail enough people to bring justice that way, right? You can't, it's not possible. You can't get enough vengeance and enough vindication. And if I unleash it that way, I have to be willing to deal with the fact 
that that which I unleash also can be unleashed on me. But ultimately, justice for me is right relationship with God. In the Bible, in both the Greek and in the Hebrew, the word that we translate righteousness is also translated justice. And so when I look at it that way, what we're after as people of faith is that people might know Christ. And that's justice. That they might be transformed, not that they may be locked up in their miserable condition, but that they may be changed. And there's not a lot of distance between that kind of justice and mercy. Any other questions? I was just mentioning um, for me that I've been to about six funerals in the last three years of young people of colour and it hasn't been necessarily police shootings as such but um, I guess systemic racism and, and sometimes um, suspicious deaths at, at the most, not um, literal shootings or suicides and my interest I guess is with young people of colour, mostly from African diaspora communities, mostly South Sudanese young people. Um, my research or interest has been around, is it possible to fit in in Australia if you obviously stand out? So looking at, um, as Australians, we're not really used to seeing young people of colour or, for lack of a better term, black people walking around the streets. And so on the weekend, um, last weekend, there was a huge media coverage around Australia of 200 proposed young people who came to um, Federation Square and were rioting and, and many of them were reported to be South Sudanese young people, African diaspora young people, um, which has caused a lot of controversy now in Australia. And recently I went to Seattle and the States just to kind of localise, look at the local experience but hear you know, stories such as yourself um, and to really just try to understand, you spoke about um, our white privilege and to see what does it look like to be an ally as well. So I just guess I just wanted to say that it means a lot um, to be here and hear your story, but it's certainly happening here in Australia and for us all just to be aware of that Indigenous deaths as well, but also for African diaspora young people. Thank you, thank you. So I have a question. Why would it be unusual to see black people walking around Australia? because they've been pushed out, right? I actually know the answer, but I want to see. I mean, because they've been pushed out. And, and one of the things I've admired so much in my couple of days at this conference is the recognition of indigenous people as being the original people. It feels good to say that. And, and that ceremony is absolutely amazing. But it means nothing if you don't live it absolutely nothing. It's lip service. And so the notion that black people, the color black, would be an oddity in Australia in 2016 says to me that there's great work to do. And to be an ally as white people is to first acknowledge the history here. It's the same in the United States. 
one of the things that we wrestle with in the United States is the acknowledgement that slavery and racism is the great sin of America and that much of that country is built on the blood and the sweat and the toil of black people. And I know that the story is different here, but there is a story. And so we, it's not possible to put all the sand back in the bottle and start all over again. Nobody is assuming that. But to be honest with our histories and where we come from is the beginning of change because therein lies our fear. Now this is Tracy talking. What I am convinced of is the great fear of this world is that those with a legacy of oppression and those with a legacy of having been oppressors are fearful that what was once done by them will be done to them. I believe that. And I hope I'm wrong, but I doubt it. And the reality is we have to move to a place where we don't have that fear. And we have to move to a place whereas those who have had some brutal trauma extolled upon them are conscious enough that vengeance is not what we're after, but that we're all after justice. And that would be that God would have the last say, because God's going to have it anyway, right? And that we could live as brothers and sisters. It is not God's it is not God's will that anybody reign over anybody else. And no matter how many times we've done it, it is still not the will of God. And it's ironic to me because we have so many layers of this, not just race. We have it in, in gender. We have it in class. We have it in age. And we still don't seem to be able to get it as a people. Right? So that's my prayer. And I would say as an ally to tell the truth, tell the story. And I know what I'm asking is dangerous. I know what I'm asking is frightening. But it's the only way we're going to get free is if we tell the story and say what was wrong and what was right, and let's move forward, you know? South Africa did truth and reconciliation hearings. And, um, and many people laud that. But I've spent some time talking to South Africans, and not much has changed, really, right? <laughs> not much has changed. You cannot reconcile what was never there. So we have to tell the truth and start building together different relationships. People are not inherently evil. No one is. No, I just don't believe that. I don't even believe that about Eve, and they keep telling me I'm wrong. You know, it's just, we're not. We're made in the image of God. Any other questions? I got to let you guys go because uh, it's pizza time. Thank you.
Thank you for being here. This was one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 16. We hope you found this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. Please check in with us at surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to engage and connect with our wider movement.